hardest things as an early stage founder is focus. There's all these amazing opportunities. Um, but one of the most critical things is actually going, okay, what do we do now? And what do we do later? And especially like, you know, you know mm. I can't take on all the work myself. Like, what am I going to do? What, where, where would co-founders be better equipped to take on something than me? When is it time to hire, like, you know, a junior employee to take on some stuff so I can work on stuff mm. that maybe is like a bit higher leverage based on my skill set. Mm. Um, so I think that's probably like the other big thing, like I kind of picked up from product management was like at the micro level at like a feature level, like which features do we build first? And even at the macro level mm. of like, okay, bro, like what projects do I work on? Where do I spend my time? So, um, man, you, you've had a, as you said, you've had a wild three or four weeks, but if I, if I go back two months ago, we were, we were having dinner at Cubby's kitchen, yeah, man. uh, in, in the city like with the old tilt, with the old tilt crew, like nothing, nothing changed. Can you tell me what happened between then and now just, and just for background for people, you, you run early work. Um, you guys recently raised, I believe 700 K 600, 700 K you, you can, you can fill me up on the details from some pretty big name investors in Australia, Blackbird being one of them. Um, but you, yeah, no, square peg, no rather. square peg, no Blackbird. Sorry, Blackbird. Um, <laughs> give me, give me the details. What happened? What happened between Cubby's kitchen and 24th of March? Yeah, absolutely. So what Cubby's kitchen would have been, what was it? January that we caught up? Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny at the time. So, uh, to put in perspective, Last year, myself, my co-founder, John Marina, all of us were working or studying full-time. And early work was an evenings and weekends project. Um, at the time, the community had started to get pretty big. We'd launched a job board. We were getting expressions of interest for like our talent search engine, which was kind of like helping candidates land roles that applying. Um, and we'd initially had like one or two investors reach out to us kind of even mm. early, like kind of midway through last year, um, especially when we started to get press. And at the time we actually, you know, I think for all three of us, like we actually didn't yet want to go full-time on the project. Like, I think for me, mm. there was a lot of product management learning that I wanted to capture at last year. Just mm. like I had like a really big feature release coming up and I wanted to actually get that experience. Like, what does it look like to ship to, you know, thousands mm. of customers? Um, Marina was like, you know, on track for promotion at Finder. And it was like you know, getting some really important product management learnings there. I think Jono was still even mm. finishing up uni. Um, so there'd been some initial the investor appetite when we'd kind of done our media release. And at the time we've gone like, you know, look, not for now, well, let's keep in touch. Hmm. I think, um, yeah, it was probably actually, uh, with, with Squarepeg, I think it was like the day of the AFR release where, um, Lucy Tan, who's was actually one of our early advisors, um, was lucky enough to hmm. connect with early on in the early work journey. Um, she's currently, currently a principal at Squarepeg and she actually reached out and she said, have you thought about funding? And I went, oh yeah, you know, thought about it, not actually looking for it. You know, I'm not really sure if it's mm -hmm. the right fit for us. Um, yeah. and actually at the time, honestly had this hypothesis of like, you know, like I never want to start a, a public company. I'm not even sure if like traditional VC really makes sense, uh, as kind of a, a format for what we're doing. We're trying to build something that's like very long-term, very kind of for purpose, stakeholder oriented. Um, mm. but you know, we, we ended up chatting with, um, kind of the, the square peg team in particular, you know, Paul Bassett who started seek. Mm. Um, so like, you know, huge inspiration mm. in terms of, you know, starting something in the career tech space. Um, mm. uh, and had just like really, really strong chats with the team. And I think like, you know, we, we didn't even have a slide deck to be honest, but, um, had those conversations, they didn't been kind of like seeing the community evolve over many months. So there was that already that understanding of like where we were going and where we were headed. Um, but I think, you know, kind of got there, I think it was probably like a, you know, a verbal offer. It might've been end of December, um, uh, kind of like, you know, the first term sheet maybe landed like early January. And then from there. You know, because we might have been looking to raise, like there was no, like, we're no like formal prep. We're like, oh shit, okay, we've got VC funding now. But like, I think like you know, at the same time, it's just like we've got to go try and you know maybe get a couple of angels. Mm -hmm. In particular, like 
angels who had experience like you know across the startup ecosystem and distribution there or specific stuff mm. like hiring so actually like super last minute i literally just like smashed together like a quick <laughs> doc on notion being like hey here's like what the fuck early work is and sent it out to just mm. like a few people um like across my network mm. and more broadly that i thought would be like mm. a like a really really good fit but i think you know this was over like christmas and new year's a super tough period so i think yeah we were lucky we got like kind of a small group it was like five angels alongside um mm. you know square Peg, including obviously like, yeah rain from archangel um, mahesh from phase one um yep. so small angel group alongside kind of a like a lead but like really really lucky with the group that we got like i think like the angels have like a terrific mix of experience um it, you mm. know like founding investing operating recruiting as well which is a big pillar for us um and i think in terms of square peg you know obviously there's the, the experience from seek with you know paul and dan krasnerstein mm. uh, both partners there um having worked very closely with seek uh, and also our board member now, James Tynan, um, was just like such an amazing fit um, for the sort of business that we're building. You know, he'd, he'd spent time at VP in, in, you know, Strategy Ops at Card Academy back when it was like a YouTube channel. And obviously, mm -hmm. start, mate, you're an amazing player in the, in the, in the startup ecosystem. Um, and so we felt that not just from a funding perspective, but I think really mm -hmm. from a um, an advisory and distribution perspective, there was a lot of advantage to taking on um, kind of like external funding rather than just bootstrapping. Um, you know, if it was purely just about the funding, I would honestly be happy to just like keep bootstrapping and just go and, you know, mm -hmm. do recruiting to maybe get a few extra bucks. And I think now with the talent search engine, we're starting to get kind of that, you know, uh, recurring revenue coming in. Um, but I think it was actually really important to us. And you'll see this in kind of like the investment memo, like Square Peg mm -hmm. invested from their own balance sheet. So not. Like, mm. we, sp we, we spoke about this um, at the dinner about the way you want you know, a third party investment to look like, or the, how you want it to look like. And, and you've had a specific, kind of had a specific vision as well for, for how that looks like. And that's kind of unique. I haven't spoken to too many founders who have a, have a vision for that. And maybe, maybe that was a, a function of it happening so fast. And you were like, well, I'm in this position now where sort of capital is coming to me. I'm not coming to capital. And, and so I can think more carefully about how I want to do it. Can you talk about you know, what that means? What does it mean for it to come off their balance sheet yeah. and not from, you know, their LP, side of the business yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really important distinction and i think it's i'm not sure if it's something that they've done really kind of before in the market but i know there's like you know there are vcs who do kind of you know invest directly from balance sheet or vcs who do kind of you know invest like for very long-term time horizons i suppose to kind of take a step back like you know when you think about like traditional venture capital right it's like typically you have you know a pool of kind of limited partners they kind of you know give money to a VC fund who then goes and invests that money. But the expectations, you know, typically kind of that, you know, like that seven to 10 year time horizon, the business usually kind of like IPOs or, you know, that gets acquired, like there's some sort of like significant liquidation event. I think the tricky thing with, you know, taking on funding in that sort of format is that like, I think for a lot of businesses, it can actually like, you know, put them under like a really high pressure path. It's like, you have to like grow, 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 grow in order to get to that sort of outcome. And I think, you know, coming from a point where like originally with early work, I pondered doing this as a non-for-profit. Like I didn't even know if this was going to be a business. Like for me, it was like much more important to build the right thing than build the biggest thing. Um, mm -hmm. Like I think one of the most, one of the riskiest things is like, if you go, you see a lot of startups like talking about like, you know, like blitz scaling and growing so fast and moving fast and breaking things, you can just end up climbing the wrong hill. Um, mm -hmm. You take a look at Facebook, right? Like I don't think, or, or Meta, I don't think, you know, like Meta set out to try and, you know, like, you know, steal as much user data as possible or polarize society or any of these sort of claims they get laid against them. I think they started out trying to connect people on college campuses. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think when you're, in kind of a for-profit environment, especially one where, you know, investors might be expecting like quite a, you know, a significant return with a traditional exit. It can potentially, mm -hmm. you know, push founders and companies towards business models that may not actually be what's best for, you know, customers and, and just broader society. Um, so mm -hmm. I think the significance of taking balance sheet, like we were really looking for someone who's a long-term partner. 
Um, this wasn't about like, hey, we just want to try and like pump this and get an exit within five years. We wanted to build this sustainably, you know, and, you know, it's possible still that, you know, we you know, potentially, you know, get acquired by like an, another private, you know, kind of for purpose oriented company. You have stuff like, you know, like, you know, dividends, which is always a possibility. There's tokenization, which is something that, you know, maybe a little bit early, um, but exciting opportunities there. But I don't think that, you know, like with the sort of company we're building earlier, like that we'd want to necessarily, you know, go and become a public listed company. Like if you put in perspective, like when your company goes public, there's a huge loss in terms of uh, the ability to, to stay long-term. Like you can have people literally like day trading on like what you consider like your dream project. The quarterly. Now, now you look, you're on a quarterly. Uh, yeah. You, um, you think about time horizon. Think about executive incentives. Like a lot of like, mm -hmm. yeah, all these analysts are like predicting on quarterly reporting and the company is judged by investors and by the public so heavily mm -hmm. against like these quarterly targets. Um, incentives for kind of often executives at that level, it's actually like mm -hmm. quarterly focused. And so you start to get this uh, incentive alignment problem where there's actually like a lot of incentive mm -hmm. if you're like a senior manager in the company to actually do things that are good for the short term, even if they're not the best for the long term or do things that help the business mm -hmm. grow, even if they're not actually what's like the best thing for customers. Um, and I think this, this problem, I think we're starting to see uh, recognized in two distinct ways. Number one, you'll see a lot of businesses staying private longer, and that's for a host of reasons. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, when you're private, there's a lot more freedom and flexibility in terms of being able to move quickly in terms of, you know, approval processes mm -hmm. and reporting. Um, and in terms of being able to focus on like perhaps longer term bets that, you know, mm -hmm. public market may be less receptive to. I think kind of number two there, um, you look at Eric Ries, you know, who wrote like the lean startup, which is like, you know, considered like one of the Bibles of, of the startup world. Mm, I've got it around here somewhere. Yeah. So do you know about out. what he started now, the project you're currently working on? No. It's called the, yeah, it. Eric Ries started something called the long-term stock exchange. And the underlying mm. hypothesis is like, you know, like obviously, you know, businesses need to be able to kind of like exit and have liquidity. But the problem is the traditional mm. option for that, i.e. going into the public markets, actually means mm. converting the business into an environment that is very... Uh, short-termist. And so the long-term stock exchange is a stock exchange that builds around the notion that the companies who list on there have to write a manifesto on like, as in like kind of like long-term thinking, their commitment to like the environment, their commitment to broader society. So I think it's mm. almost trying to normalize long-term and for-purpose thinking as a core part of public businesses. And I think mm. we're still early here, as in I think Twilio and Asana have done kind of like secondary listings on there, but to be honest, they're still on, on mm. the main stock exchanges. So I don't think that vision has been realized yet. But I think we're starting mm. to see a, a growing recognition around, you know, mechanisms for, you know, companies like, you know, whether they, you know, go public or whether they, they stay private to, to build in mm. a for-purpose way. You look at, you know, B Corps as a certification, another terrific one, even non-dilutive funding mm. that allows, you know, startups to stay, you know, private permanently. So there's lots of options emerging mm. out there in the market. But I think, you know, it's important, again, coming back to venture capital, it's not just about the money. There's, you know, I think like the advisory piece is huge like getting really top quality thinkers, like thinking very deeply about your business. And then the distribution within the startup ecosystem, which is, you know, a big part of who we're trying to help in, in terms of our scope um, is, is a really, really powerful factor as well. So, so just circling back, the, the balance sheet, you know, method was really to align you and your investors in a long-term mindset. Exactly, exactly. Like when, when you think about like ecosystem benefits for, you know, someone like a square peg, it's like, it's mm. not about just them getting you know, an exit as quickly as possible for, you know, um, you know, investors and LPs. I think there's a, a really important piece here about like long-term lifting up the startup ecosystem together as a whole. And, you know, like obviously mm. for a VC, I think there are, there are a couple of key advantages there as in like, number one, it's like, you know, being able to get that vantage point into finding future founders first, you know, like at the other community mm. where we're trying to cultivate a, a bunch of young people um, who would, you know, want to work on, you know, really cool unsolved problems and 18% of our community, mm. which is 2,500 people are founders. So 
mm. many of those founders don't even list themselves as founders on LinkedIn, right? Mm. You know, like for investors, like the ability to kind of tap into that deal flow is like a, a pretty unique opportunity in terms of being able to find not the founders of today, but the founders of tomorrow. That's, mm. That's interesting. Ecosystem benefit number one. Number two, mm. you've got to think about, okay, you know, early work at its core, like we're an aggregator of amazing young talent. Like we're trying to build the best possible community we can of young people interested in careers in tech, startups, and social impact. Mm. So when you think from uh, right, an investor perspective, um, there's a huge piece here about, you know, being able to, you know, understand the talent market, get top talent into their portfolio companies and help their portfolio companies uh, to kind of, you know, engage and retain really top young talent. Mm. Um, so I think like, it, yeah, early work is probably a bit of an edge case here where the sort of business that we're building has a lot of synergies with a type of business like a venture capital firm where they are investing mm. in, in a lot of startups. And so I think like, you know, by taking that balance sheet investment, it's a commitment to, I think a long-term partnership, um, you know, for both of us thinking about like, you know, like how can we get more, you know, young people building startups and working for startups, um, which, you know, mm. for us is kind of like alongside tech and social impact is one of the three core pillars of what we call kind of the careers of tomorrow. Can you, can you, um, tell me the, the founding story of early work? Like how, how you said that you guys were working on it, um, in the evenings and I'm, I'm too familiar with that. Not, not just one, not just two, three different probably things that I've worked on, whether it be uni full-time, tilt full-time and whatever else I was working on at the time and then working now and, and working on Airfluence and now working on, you know, now I'm actually focused, uh, you know, solely on, on one thing, which is, which is kind of refreshing. So one thing, um, it's, it's very, it's very uh, unlike me. So I'm, I'm sure I'll find something along. Well, this is, I guess you can count this as a second. Yeah. Thing, hang but, on. You're doing a um, as well, man. Yeah. That's, that's well, it's, it's an, it's an hour a week. I try to keep it two hours max. So but can, can you tell me the founding story? I'm, I'm keen to, to know how it all came together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to, to kind of, yeah, to give you some perspective, uh, the year was 2020. I was a final year mm. student at UNSW. I had mm. recently started at a startup called Offload. At the time, this was a 10-person startup, essentially solving the problem of trucks across Australia running with empty loads, like this whole inefficiency in how like shippers use carriers and like the, the chance to really better match those and you know obviously improve sustainability mm. outcomes was having a ton of fun there. And I, and I was just about to graduate from a marketing computer science degree at UNSW. And I think throughout like mm. my university degree, I'd always spent more time to be honest on internships than grades. Like I, you know, mm. worked with, uh, you know, Tilt, who were an awesome startup in my first year, got very lucky there, mm. just like found Harry, I think it was like through email after like searching the company. Mm. And, you know, like from pretty early on in uni, I got the chance to work across a lot of tech and startup internships, different company sizes, mm. different skill types, you know, sales, marketing, design, operations, et cetera. And, you know, I was having so much fun with this startup. I just got a grad offer at Atlassian as a product manager. And, you know, I was wrapping up uni and a bunch of friends would just ask me because they're in a similar boat to me where it's like, you know, they were wrapping up and they're like, actually, this startup stuff, this tech stuff seems pretty cool. But I just got all these questions like, dude, like, where do you even find tech roles? Where do you find startup roles? Like, what the hell's growth, product UX? Like, who are the companies that are hiring for these roles in Australia? Mm. And started to realize there was just this huge literacy gap on campuses around mm. a lot of future-focused careers. Like if you go over to the US and you go to a school like Stanford, you know, the top students are going into tech and startups or they're building their own companies. You go to a lot of universities in Australia and a lot of those like, you know, business focused students, a lot of them are, you know, still going into, you know, consulting, banking, corporate law, professional services. Like that's very much the norm. And I think when I was on campus, like, you know, I, I was mm. part of, you know, consulting societies. And I think, you know, going into tech and going into startups was then still like very much like a, a minority case. And start to realize a lot of that just came down mm. to visibility. Like people missed out on amazing roles because they didn't know they existed or, you know, they, they didn't mm. know where to, where to even find them. So how it started was originally a newsletter. Um, I would start with 10 subscribers 
And what I would do is once every two weeks, I would curate a list of 10 to 20 tech and startup jobs and internships across Sydney. Literally, you know, cause I was messaging all these mates individually. And I was like, well, this is pointless. I'll just like pull all together at once. I'm lazy. So why send multiple messages mm. when you can send one, right? Mm. In addition to that started, um, just providing free career resources. I was like, I think a lot of people don't know actually how to break into startups. So I was like, I'll share, like, here are my interview answers for this company. Here's how I do a cover letter. Here's how I do a resume. And it's not that I knew everything, but just, you know, because I'd spend a lot of time on internships and uni at startups, there's like a thing or two I'd picked up just around, you know, like how I approached applications that I thought might be helpful to some other people. I think the final piece there early on as well was like starting to interview young founders and, and young operators in the startup ecosystem. I think challenging that conventional narrative of like, oh, you know, startups are risky. That's something you do later down the line when you have a lot of experience. I realized a lot of people just because their social circle actually didn't know many people directly working in startups who their age. So what I wanted to do was showcase young people in that space. So earlier, like, yeah, mm. if we talk about how it began, like it really began just as a, a newsletter helping newsletter. to kind of, you know, curate information for free just around what jobs mm. are out there and, you know, tips on how to break into them. Um, mm. I originally like, you know, it's probably like edition three or four, where I just decided to spam it across a bunch of uni discussion groups. I probably cold messaged or in warm message, like 300, 400 friends. Like I just messaged people saying, Hey, I'm starting this free newsletter to help people land tech and start roles. Thought you might be keen, like, you know, check it out mm. here. Um, and that was like, yeah, it's something I still do today in terms of like cold LinkedIn reach outs, but pretty early on, I was like, you know what? I think this is something that's like, could probably help a lot of people. It was like during COVID people were like struggling with like, you know, trying to find grad roles and intern roles. Um, and if you see people who are interested in like, you know, doing information systems or computer science, chances are they'd like something like this. So like, there was no harm in reaching out. So I just posted all the pieces and I got a really positive reception. So like subscribe account just like, you know, started to shoot up. Yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised. And only because. For, let's take, for example, uh, design, user experience, user interface design, yeah. something that I think is like one of the most important pieces um, for a startup, but then also for an, any larger organization, just being able to communicate with the customer and convert that into something, some sort of high, low fidelity, high fidelity mockups before you then commit resources to engineering. But at university, there is no single degree that I'm aware of that covers design like user experience or user interface design now i don't know if you've i don't know if you've had a, a different experience with this but so it's something that no one knows about anyone who's doing a tertiary education as far as i'm aware like i did biomedical engineering everyone wanted to be like a r&d engineer that was what everyone thought that was the only role that there was wow and then and then i i left and i did kind of what you did which was whole bunch of internships, whole bunch of jobs while at uni. And then I became a product manager at a smaller company, sort of cut my teeth building shitty products there. <laughs> but everyone, everyone was like, what's a product manager? Like, are you a manager of something? Like, I'm like, no, you're just building a, a like a software product. But people are like product, hardware product. I'm like, no, like soft, so, you know, Instagram, like yeah. there's a guy that, that helps you that builds that stuff. And it, the, the communication barrier there. So I resonate with, with what you're saying, just because like product manager, back when I became a product manager, which wasn't too long ago, it was maybe five years ago, like was a non-existent style role. It's crazy. Go even further, yeah. go even further back to like when I was at Incubate, um, like people were like, what the fuck's a startup? Like, and th this isn't just my experience. I feel like a lot of people were like, like you said, to risk, but it's like, well, how risky is it if that business has three years of runway? and can pay you a good salary and you're going to learn more. Like it's probably more risky to go to a job where you're like become a specialist from day one. Like, don't you want to be a, oh. a generalist and then figure out what you're good at and then just hone in over time. Dude, uh, Yeah. Like you, you spot on with everything you're saying. There's like so many points now that are popping my brain. I think first one, just on yeah. like, you know, as in like 
you know, like UX courses. Like, cause I remember like I was doing like computer science and marketing at UNSW and I was looking for like a UX kind of like degree and mm. they didn't really kind of have one. And I was like, I just mm. transferred to UCID cause UCID just started this design computing program, which is now becoming a bit more popular. But even then it's like, okay, for instance, like myself and Marina, uh, you know, one of my co-founders, we both end up being product managers. The amount of courses that we took in product management university combined, zero. There was not a single mm. one that we encountered, like doing kind of computer science or information systems or commerce, which are the three degrees you would probably expect a, a course like that most. And so that's the thing. Mm. I think, I think like, you know, the landscape for tech and startups is changing so quickly and the roles are changing so quickly that the traditional university mm. curriculum, I, I think struggles to kind of keep up with the pace of change and ensure that content's actually relevant. Um, mm. and I think kind of like to, to your point then around like, even like understanding like, what is a startup? Like, I just remember this one anecdote where it's like, I talked to someone in like my commerce degree at uni. Uh, and they didn't know what Atlassian was. And Atlassian is the second biggest company in Australian history, I think by like market cap. And mm. it's just, it's just unbelievable. Cause like, if you go to the U S it's a totally different picture, but I think Australia, we just yeah. haven't had that same sort of like cultural literacy around kind of the, the, the tech and startup space. And it's not something mm. by default. Like when you go to O-Week, when you go on campus, you might see ComBank, you might see Deloitte and you might see, I don't know, Macquarie Bank. Um, but you don't usually see startups advertising themselves because you know, startups don't actually have the budget for, for that sort of employer branding. And so, you know, mm. the, the big companies go very hard on the traditional grad programs, the sponsorship around those, the events around those on campuses. So people come in with this, um, uh, very, uh, narrow subset of the total possible set of roles that are out there because of just what's marketed to them and what's, you know, um, promoted in the society environment, especially. Yeah. I mean, another small subset, just of my friends, I would say 80% of my friends work at a big four accounting firm. Yeah. That's Deloitte, KPMG, whatever the fucking the other two are. <laughs> like that is that is the the everyone goes there, and and now people are starting. They're, they're I've had a lot of chatter about people reevaluate, and it's actually early work. I might send them to early work because they're thinking about you know like, do I like this? Do I like audit? No, I don't like audit. No one likes audit. Okay, well there's two options here. I stay at this company and work my way up to like a manager, and then try to exit audit into something a bit more general. But I'm still at Deloitte, say. Or I have to reevaluate what my career is. Do I, and now, and now all of them are saying, well, I like Google. Google seems pretty cool. Like they go into the big tech ones now, not the smaller yeah. tech ones. So they're, Google, Salesforce, so that Amazon, like Amazon's hiring like SDRs like crazy. Too like, many hires uh, on Australia. Insane. So, so people are now starting to see these, like, I guess you could call it big four tech as like blue chip and on par now with the consulting and, yeah. and accounting firms. Except they pay, you know, like two and a half times as much. Exactly. But you can get paid the same amount as a, as a Deloitte or more, still more, maybe one and a half times as more, but go into like a Canva or one below a Canva, like maybe like a, a deputy or like some of one of these companies, yeah. right? But they'll, they'll still, they still want, fuck, they want talent. They're in a war for talent. You, you right know, now. the crazy thing, right? Like, as in, this is something I think about. So like I had a, actually had a grad offer at Deloitte in kind of like digital consulting and I, I did an internship. Deloitte. It was actually decent. Like, you know, I learned some like good UX <laughs> skills there. Like it wasn't a bad place, but like, you know, I don't think it's necessarily like super aligned with like the sort of problems I want to work on. Um, kind of had this grad <laughs> offer and, you know, I, I had just gone and done this like startup conference in, at Stanford called ASUS, which is like about ASUS <laughs> student entrepreneurship. And like on the flight back from that, I was just chatting with a friend and I was just like, wait, why go work for like, you know, professional services when I can just like go work for a startup? Because straight up, like you think about the, the grad salaries that, you know, like the traditional big professional services firms, not too hot, not too huge. You can get that mm. same sort of salary at an early stage startup plus equity. So there's literally like no mm. difference in terms of like base salary. Uh, it's often- And upside. And then you get that yeah. upside, like if the company makes it big, then you have, you're actually, you're owning a part of what you're building. Whereas like if you work mm. purely salary and there's no stock and no equity, 
the upside, like from a financial perspective, is just super, super capped. And I think even the big tech companies have, like, have recognized that, right? As in like all of them have ESOPs. So if you think about like working for like a consulting firm or impressional services firm versus a big tech company, a huge difference is the stock. Um, mm-hmm. If you're just thinking about kind of those financial factors, right? Um, but I think the, the other fascinating thing, and you, you touched on it earlier, which is around like this idea of like risk. It's like, oh, it's risky to join mm-hmm. startups. And, and there's a couple points I'll make there. Like number one, the word startup is a very broad category. Like would you call Canva a startup? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like startups like a mindset almost. It's not even like a stage. It's like yeah, I, I call it, are you like as in like to, mm. to me a startup is like yeah like a private business. It's probably not like publicly listed, and it's not yet kind of like the market leader in a category. Like mm. as in you know I think can what Canva's doing. It's like they're probably like the world number one for that category almost of like um kind of like entry level graphic design and social media mm. marketing tools. Um, so it's like, I'd probably call that almost like the scale up model. Like they're still a private company, but they're worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars. And so the, like when mm-hmm. people talk about the risk of joining a startup, so it's like, they often don't differentiate between like joining a Canva versus joining, you know, like a 10 person startup. Like those are very different things. Like you've got kind of your early stage startups, mm-hmm. your growth stage where they very different market, they're starting to scale and then your scale ups, you know, a Canva, AOLX, Deputy, where honestly it's like the risk mm-hmm. of joining those and the companies going under is extremely, extremely low, um, almost mm-hmm. eligible. Um, yeah. so I think there's like a, you know, kind of a, a bit of a false perception there around risk. But the other thing also, even when we talk about risk, like you made a great point here, like startups have runway, right? Like you mm. go join uh, an early stage startup. It's like, okay, like let's say they have, you know, one and a half, two years runway. Hypothetically, if you work there one half or two years and then they went under, you've probably built some amazing experience because you had a high level autonomy. You were working directly with the founders. You got to wear many hats. You're working in a very fast paced environment. And you could probably mm. after that, if you wanted to go back into, you could look, and I, I remember, so like I interned mm. with several startups throughout uni, I ended up working at Atlassian, which is a big tech company, but they loved the fact that I'd worked at startups before. Like it's actually seen as an advantage, not a disadvantage. And so, yes, there's a job risk of, okay, maybe you mm. lose your job possibly, but the career risk of working at a startup when you're early in your career is extremely low. I'd say, yeah, to your point, the highest career risk is going into a role where you don't get a chance to explore a lot of different areas and understand like what you like most, what you're best at, and being able to think about problems holistically. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I, something that I learned from Harry is just like, you, if you optimize everything around your rate of learning, um, then nothing else matters. And if you go to a place where you're immediately stagnated and you can't learn, then that is the biggest risk. Not, not the financial. And by the way, like most people are moving jobs after two and a half years these yeah. days. So it's not like there's much, the startup needs much runway before you fuck off anyway. Yeah. Like there's more chance of you leaving them before they, exactly. you know, it, we're talking about, we're, we're not talking about like, you know, like out of a garage startup. We're talking about someone that's raised capital. Yeah, like They're startup. like, you know, seed plus like series A plus like the, these kinds of startups that, that are, they're thinking about 18, 24, 36 kind of month horizons, um, at least for the capital in on hand. So, um, yeah, risk. So I got a question for you. Shoot, man. At, you, you spoke about Atlassian um, and product management. Can you can you talk me through what you learned there, what you saw, um, and any kind of like tidbits that you learned that you you can now take away uh, as you build uh, your empire? Yeah, super good question. Like I think like Atlassian, like it maybe it wasn't like the perfect for me, but I would say it was like definitely a place where I learned a lot. A place with really good people, mm. like really smart people, and broadly like for by big company standards, a pretty good culture. Um, I think like, yeah, when I think about the role of product management, I think it's actually just such amazing training as a founder. Like you almost like get to be like a mini founder without the risk. So to, uh, mm-hmm. to put it in perspective, I was working on a product called Jira Service Management, which is an IT help desk kind of built on the Jira platform. Um, so you think about IT teams like taking in like, you know, reporting incidents or people reporting bugs or like service requests. Um, 
specifically I was owning our strategy around incident management, essentially like what new features to build there, how to interact with other Atlassian products around incident management. So I think it was pretty cool. It's like, you know, normally you think about a grad program and you're like reporting to a manager taking tasks. This was very different than like, you know, like I came in and like I had a manager mentoring me for a little bit and kind of like doing some small tasks for her. But then eventually like my manager kind of just handed me the team and trusted me to kind of own and drive that. Um, and so I think like the level of autonomy you get as an associate product manager is really, really unusual for like a, a traditional graduate program. Like I ended up leading a project that was uh, across five teams in three countries. Uh, like teams of you know engineers with designers each with you know product managers um which was really really intense like as a grad it was like honestly like super nerve-wracking i think the first six months were a big struggle it felt like a fire hose of learning um but and and, you know there were times where like i really burnt out and really struggled at work um like you know especially when trying to do a side hustle like it was like pretty rough from a mental health perspective i think like probably the second half of my tenure there so i spent a year there like january of you know 2021 to just february this year I think as I started to kind of like build confidence in my skill set, probably after like six months, I think what was yeah really cool about it. Um, I, I think the, the two biggest things I took away were number one, proactive leadership. Like as a product manager, you've got engineers um, who are kind of you know doing the code. You've got designers who are, you know okay like you know coming up with some designs, but you've got to actually define like as in like what are we doing now? What are we doing later? What does the team need? What's the team missing? What are they struggling with? Mm. So you know like for instance like I saw that our process you know was a bit tricky in terms of like, you know, designers and just communicating with each other. So worked with one of my designers to build like, um, like a, a, like a project system where they could easily exchange kind of the information about, you know, bugs and kind of design requests, mm. um, looking at like, hang on a minute. I realized like we don't actually have a good repository around all the different user roles for this product. And so actually mm. building that out, sharing that with teams and engineers to make their lives easier. Like, I think as a product manager, you're a gap filler and you're an ambiguity manager. Mm. People don't quite know necessarily like, Hey, like, you know, what are we measuring? What's the goal here? Or like, you know, how do we deal with this gap or this problem? And your job is, it's not to make all the decisions or to come up with all the ideas, but to be the person who spots the gaps and like instigates and goes, Hey guys, like there's a gap here and bringing together the right people to come to a good decision. So I think like, yeah, mm-hmm. when you think about it as a founder, like as a founder, like you don't really have a manager, you're just kind of like there on your own. And your job is to like, you know, set a vision, set metrics around that vision, set smaller mm-hmm. projects and milestones and like essentially like identify like what are the gaps in getting there. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that proactive leadership of, you know, being able to see things and just do them, um, like I built that as a muscle and that was really valuable. I think the other thing as well, and something I was actually quite poor at, I think throughout uni was like ruthless prioritization. Like I'm someone where it's like, I love doing like a lot of different things, like very like ADHD type brain. Um, but I think Atlassian caused me to get very intentional about like actually saying no to things, delegating things, deferring things till later and actually just, you know, yeah accepting like, what do I need to do right now? What do I need to do this week? And what do I need to do later? I think, you know, one of the hardest things as an early stage founder is focus. There's all these amazing opportunities. Um, but one of the most critical things is actually going, okay, what do we do now? And what do we do later? And especially like, you know, you know mm. I can't take on all the work myself. Like, what am I going to do? What, where, where would co-founders be better equipped to take on something than me? When is it time to hire, like, you know, a junior employee to take on some stuff so I can work on stuff mm. that maybe is like a bit higher leverage based on my skill set. Mm. Um, so I think that's probably like the other big thing, like I kind of picked up from product management was like at the micro level at like a feature level, like which features do we build first? And even at the macro level mm-hmm. of like, okay, bro, like what projects do I work on? Where do I spend my time? Um, so I, I suppose those are kind of the two biggest learnings I'd say at last thing, like, yeah, in the autonomy and ownership perspective is really, really good. Um, you know, it's a bigger tech company. So definitely, you know, the pace is, I came from a 10 person staff and the pace is definitely not the same. And I think that's probably something mm-hmm. that like was really pulling me back to the startup world was it's like. I think the faster you can mm. ship, the faster you can learn. And similar to you, it's like, I want to learn as quickly as possible. 
And I felt mm-hmm. the best way to do that was in a startup environment. I think ultimately, like, you know, kind of the number one reason why I decided to kind of go all in on early work, it actually just came down to problem space. And this is something that's like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I think for a lot of people early in uni, like not as much of a focus. But for me, it's like, I kind of came to realize, like, there are a certain set of problems that I really, really fucking care about. Like, I really give a shit about them. Mm-hmm. And like, one of them is like, how do you help people find like meaningful work and find work that really resonates with them because we spend the majority of waking hours of many of our days working. And it just like mm. bothered me so much that like a lot of people went into roles that they hated, that they were burning out from, that they felt, you know, disconnected to. Um, and, I, you know, I think like I saw a chance with early work as it started to gain traction, like the content community to like go all in on that and help as many people mm. as I could land a job that they loved. Um, and to mm. me, in terms of like, the level of human impact, it felt a lot more direct and tangible versus kind of like maybe the kind of the traditional like B2B SaaS type company that you see often being like super, super venture scalable. So ultimately, like, I, mm-hmm. I think for me, like, you know, Alaskan was a, a great place to learn like the core product management skill set. I'm very lucky to have worked with a lot of really brilliant product managers and like understood like their paradigms, their frameworks have sparred with them and seen how they think. And I think what I'll take mm-hmm. going into early work, yeah, I think, you know, ruthless prioritization, proactive leadership. And I think that product sense in terms of, you know, tackling problems in a structured way, I'm trying to, you know, like validate in a lean way, you know, I I can rattle off a bunch of buzzwords, but I think you get the idea. Yeah, I get the idea. I mean, it's something that I've, I've had to, I had to figure out the hard way because I, the startup that I joined didn't have a product leader. So I, I became the product leader with no product experience and you can imagine how many things you do wrong. And so then I went on this, then I went on this journey of like, talking to basically every single product person I could find, whether it was like VP of product at Airtasker or if it, if it was, you know, even Mahesh, you know, you mentioned Mahesh from one, uh, one ventures or phase, what's it? Phase one ventures. Um, who by the way, worked at, uh, I got a funny story actually, cause he worked at incubate. He started a business and I was the pro, uh, the program coordinator. Some like shitty, I was, I was James Alexander's like kind of secondhand man there oh, no way. and and Mahesh was, uh, he was starting a business called You Refer Jobs. And I can recite his pitch because he said it to me so many times, like in the den, in the Sydney uh, uni den there. Um, not too long after, I was working on something similar to what you're working on, but it was for JavaScript engineers. So it was like a, wow. a work board for, and this is before JavaScript engineers were like a thing. And I, I forget what I called it. I called it maybe like Neuron or I called it like something really, really, something really stupid. But, um, uh. So I go to him and he said, we need JavaScript engineers like desperately. So I was like, all right, cool. Like I'll get you guys JavaScript engineers, but I, I knew no one. Like, so I contacted the, the JavaScript community page and he brought me into the Canva office cause he just moved over to Canva as their like head of people. Yeah. And he, so he signs me in and I'm walking in and, um, he goes, oh, this is the space. I'm like, this is so cool. And he goes, oh, these are some of the boardrooms. And I look in the boardroom and I see Melanie Perkins with like a board of people. It must've been like the board or like senior, senior people discussing things. But I had like read so much about her and like followed her story so much because I think she had a YouTube channel or whatever. I felt like I kind of knew her, <laughs> and and I saw her a couple of times in Surrey Hills because that's that's where I worked and that's where she worked. And uh, and I waved. I was like, not even thinking like she doesn't know who the fuck I am. And I I waved and she looked at me and the board looked at me or whoever was sitting there looked at me and then she just went straight back down to her pen and paper, ignored me completely. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Mahesh, take me to the back. Let's, let's get this over and done with. Um, and finally I, I saw Mahesh in Byron Bay, you know, maybe a, in a break during COVID, um, at, at a club. So wow. a lot of, a lot of, a lot of cool little stories there, but, um, anyway, so go, go on with what you were saying. I cut you off. What was I saying? Dude, my brain's so potato. 
No, that's all right. I, I actually, I actually can't can't remember. But I, I did have something else. Well, actually, we're just wrapping up uh, product management stuff. So, yes. Uh, yes. You, you learned the the, the prioritization uh, at Atlassian, um, something that I've that I've dealt with as well. And then you felt like that was enough to take that into your like product experience at early work. Yeah. You felt pretty comfortable oh, with that. Something I was going to say, like it, it's it's so fascinating that you mentioned like you were like the only product person in a small startup. This was actually the dilemma I got put in. When I was in my final year of university, mm. I was working a startup that I love. Like Offload is, I think is like an amazing startup. You know, Geoffroy and Thomas at the time were the co-founders, both like terrific folks, like really, really smart. I got the chance to work with both of them closely. Um, and, you know, kind of like, you know, had I originally was a part-time thing, like converted to full-time and kind of got this Atlassian offer. And the tricky thing was like, you know, at Offload, there were no product managers. And I had just kind of come to this hypothesis that like, I think product management is a really good skill set that I want to build. And I didn't mm. have the conviction that I'd be able to build at a startup where there was no product manager. Like I wanted to be able to learn from senior product managers. And that was like the mm. biggest reason why I didn't stay at that startup. And like, was it the right decision or the wrong decision? You know, I guess I'll never know. I think like, you know, I've ended up where I am. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with that in terms of, you know, starting my own company. Mm. But um, it, it's such a tricky one, like, especially with, like these emerging roles, like product management, where it's like, there's this kind of like, you know, uh, question of like, you know, if you're a young person, like you're like, oh wait, am I doing the right thing? Would I even be like, yeah, am I learning the best practices? Mm -hmm. So I can like totally empathize with like where you're coming from in terms of like being a startup mm -hmm. and like wanting to understand and learn and do product management when there's no one there mm -hmm. from that field. Yeah, I definitely got ex like exposure from, you know, the engineers that we had on our team. They, they came, some came from 25 years engineering experience at like, you know, Combank and like insurance businesses, like old sort of old uh, technology businesses um and finance businesses and then some like earlier ones but like i would really lean on them like what are the things that like what what are the best practices or what are the best things that you learn at at previous startups or previous businesses and it kind of they kind of gave me like a filtered view on what it was to be a good product manager because they'd like really scathe the bad practices they'd be like do not do this do not do that yeah and, and you can learn that first and then, second hand like don't go talk to experienced product managers and like you know avoid some of their fuck-ups or just go and do them yourself yeah yeah, I mean, the, the product manager is talking to the engineers at the end of the day and designers. And so they're kind of feeling the repercussion of their effects, you know, good or bad. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, when you know when you have a good leader and when you have a bad leader and um, and like you said, you feel you fill in the gaps. You, you don't have to be like Jesus. You just have to, like, let everyone do their work and get, get things out of their way and kind of be the fireman. That's what I like to like to call myself. So nice. just put out, put out, put out the fires. Bring out fire. So I, interesting. Um. Early home, early home. You, you. Uh, we also spoke about this at the at Covey's Kitchen briefly because we, we were talking about DAOs, and I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of break off into that in a second. But in, in one of the articles I read about you, there was many articles. Um, you mentioned early home. I understood the idea, but I want you to talk to me about it. Give me it from the beginning, the genesis idea, and then talk me through like what that looks like over the next however many years, if it becomes this big thing that you want it to become, or if it's just a concept. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, happy to kind of start from like early inception idea. So maybe actually to give some context, like when I finished up like the university and like finished up with that startup offload and I was about to start a grab roll, I deliberately took like three months off. I was like, I just want to hmm. spend time doing things that otherwise wouldn't have time to do. And that's like, actually like when I was doing a lot of user research for early work and like testing out career coaching models, I was writing newsletters. Um, but one hmm. of the other things I did was actually like, go and volunteer on a permaculture farm. Like up in the Northern Rivers region, I was like working as a veggie farmer, like waking up at 6 a.m., working until like 11 a.m. Yeah. and the rest of the day off, right? And you go, wait, why the hell did you do that? Uh, I was like, wow, like I think I looked at climate change, which is one of the world's most pressing problems. And I went like so much that like a big part of that actually comes down to like agriculture. Like actually like, mm. like the food that we're growing and eating, like is that being done in a sustainable way? Like I follow a vegan diet, for instance, but I actually wanted mm. to like get a stronger sense of like even like, yeah, how 
food is grown and how can we do that in a way that's compatible with surrounding ecosystems? Like you look at you know, potential issues around world hunger um, and want to get some hands-on experience. And I was like, well, I'm probably not going to get that sort of experience at Atlassian as a B2B enterprise company. So I, let me go and just, you know, <laughs> I spent, yeah, spent kind of a month living up kind of in that region, you know, working as a farmer. And what was fascinating is like, you have people who have like way less money, way less focus on careers, but a lot of them seem actually like much happier. They were really connected mm. to their local community. Like everyone like knew everyone who was kind of like living around them. It felt very interconnected that way. Um, people really close mm. to nature, living a very healthy lifestyle, doing a lot of like work outdoors, you know, eating really healthy diets. I kind of came back to Sydney after that during lockdown. And like the, the contrast was so stark. Like I saw a place that was just like so, so connected and started to kind of form this hypothesis that, you know, as in like, not like a certain view, but I was like, I wonder if, you know, living in kind of like a, a smaller city or larger town versus like a super big metropolis might actually be better for a sense mm. of communal connection. And I think like one thing we saw during COVID, I know I felt this pretty personally, was like, you know, it was like a really, really tricky time to kind of feel that sense of community. Um, mm. and, and you look at a place like Sydney, right, where, um, you know, many of your mates might be an hour and away, an hour and a half away even, like, and you might not even know your neighbors on your street. So when we mm. talk about community in big cities, it's like actually very fragmented. So the thesis behind an early home, originally, I actually just got two mates together and I was like, hey, fellas, let's just move to Newcastle, um, like do kind of like a cool house up there. All of us were kind of like tinkering around with our own projects um, and kind of, you know, like spend a bit of time up there and actually start to realize, hang on a minute, like I'm building this community. There's a lot of young founders and creators. And one of the hardest things starting off is actually the zero to one. That's such a hard process. And I was like, hang on a minute. But like, you know, I know for me with early work, one thing that really helped was being around other founders and learning from other founders. And the thesis then became, well, wait a minute, like, what if you can get people to live in a kind of like a beautiful natural location with a strong sense of local community, but specifically actually bring founders and creators together from the early community. Um, so this is very much an experiment. Like I, I wouldn't say early home is like, you know, like a core business model for us. It's not like a, a core pillar of what we do. I think though, it's like, this is essentially an experiment in physical community of, you know, can co-living mm. be a really, really brilliant form of co-learning for founders. And then kind of, you know, even just at a personal level, I like kind of test that hypothesis of like, you know, does living outside kind of like a super big urban area actually work better for me from a, a lifestyle mm. perspective? Um, so actually right now, like, yeah, headed to Wollongong tomorrow with like four other people um, from mm. kind of the early work. And we'll probably have about like, I'd say like eight total for kind of the first cohort, two houses in the, the northern Wollongong region. Um, but mm. it's, yeah, it's an experiment. Um, you know, over time you ask like, okay, what happens over kind of the years to come? I do think that even though we're building a digital community, physical community is super, super important. Like I'm not like, mm. I, I'm not a super big, like metaverse guy. I actually, uh, mm. big, I like the outdoors. I like, you know, closing down mm. my computer and going outside sometimes, believe it or not, starting a tech startup. Crazy. None of, none of, none of this. Uh, uh, no, miss me with the VR headsets. No. Like it, it's yeah, cool, yeah, but like, right. <laughs> I just think, yeah, if you look at, you know, how human civilization has evolved, like. You know, traditionally, like we spent most of our time mm. outdoors, we were living in smaller groups and towns that were very physically connected. And now mm. that sense of community is very much fragmented and pulled apart in traditional urban environments. So I think there's a really yeah. interesting piece here around like co-living and like, you know, over time, especially when you look at like, you know, housing affordability issues, will we see people with the rise of remote work start to move to crater towns? So you look in the US, mm. there's kind of like this like rise of crater towns, this rise of hacker houses there. But again, Australia it's probably like a little bit further behind in the thinking here. And, you know, you look at like someone like Startmate where they like starting to think about stuff like Startmate City. I think the way that we organize where people live in the next 10 years is going to change pretty significantly because of remote work. Like all of a sudden you no longer have to go to an office, but that has yeah. a ripple effect of, okay, if you don't need to go to office, you don't even need to live near the office. 
What is important is living in you know, like family and friends. Community is really important. Mm-hmm. So cities will, will always kind of play a role. But I think for people who have that flexibility in terms of remote work, particularly young people, like I've seen friends move up to Byron Bay, seen friends move up to Newcastle, Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, you're starting to see you know, property prices in, the, in those areas shoot up. And so there's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a really interesting experiment here. And for me, honestly, just like, you know, like I'm working at work by day, but like, you know, if I'm doing kind of this cool co-living thing by night, then I'm, I'm learning even faster. I'm learning about something that's quite different to the core early work business model. And because we're building mm. a community, I think a lot of those learnings going to be quite transferable. Mm. Uh, there's a guy called Chris Sucker who uh, I think he did that a TV show, but he was a he's like one of the most successful investors of all time. He, you know, twenty thousand dollar check pre seed check in Twitter, Uber, like all these sorts of companies, and so mm. he's made billions and billions and billions of dollars. But he basically this is before sort of COVID. This is you know maybe 15 years ago or 10 years ago, but he left San Francisco because he was like, I, I want to stop playing this game and I want to live on my terms. And so he yep. went out to like the mountains with his wife and his family and they got a ranch. And what he would do was like, he'd take meetings with, he'd take meetings with the founders who wanted to take checks from him and be like, well, instead of us just taking a meeting, why don't you come up to our house? We'll have dinner. We'll break bread. We'll hack on the stuff at night. We'll talk through ideas. I want to get a sense of like, who, who are you? Like, what are you all about? And like some of those people, like Travis Kalanick, like Uber, like, you know, all sorts of like really well-known founders. And so I had, you know, I have the same want to have a place, even if it's my own home, if it's in Sydney or somewhere else where you can bring people over, just like brainstorm. It's like uh, early works having a problem. Luca, I think Luca might know something about this. Well, why don't we just connect rather than doing this over Zoom and like have dinner and try to work it out or bring in a bunch of different people and have like this brainstorming session and really like just solve the problem faster. And because you have people outside of the organization, it, it makes it easier for you to solve those issues potentially, or at least have a new, have, have new exposure to ideas. Um, yeah, it's, it's, so ha- it's a fantastic. One. Hang on. It's um, I think like one, one nuance there though, like with, with Chris's story, it's like moving out to a ranch with your family is great. Like it's super, super cool. I love the fact mm. he's like living around nature. But community mm. is such an important need. And I think like, isn't, I probably wouldn't mm. like go and like live in the woods on my own. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, be mm. cool from like a nature perspective, but community is so important mm. to me. And that's why with mm. early home, it's actually not just about like, okay, going to live in an area that's like, you know, surrounded by like beach and bush and mountains. It's doing that alongside mm. a community. That's the really, really mm. important distinction. It's like, I think like to me, like at a theoretical level, mm. the best lifestyle is probably like living close to nature, but also having a strong sense of community around you. And it's trying to kind of combine mm. those two different forces in one way. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Can you talk to me about like the mechanics of the uh, the houses in Wollongong? Like, you guys renting them out? Like, how long are you guys there oh, for? Dude, this is like still like literally still in the works. Like tomorrow, I'm doing two property inspections in Thrill. Hunches will probably look okay, at like cool. two houses each with three to four people yeah. rental for three to six months. Um, so probably kind of yeah. short to midterm rental, like enough time for people to get a sense of community, but also like to still test out the area and see if it's right for them. This will kind of be the first cohort, kind of building it while flying. Um, but really, the goal is like. First and foremost, like we're not charging any program costs. Like people just pay for rent as they normally would with a share house. But the mm. goal is to build the best possible physical community I can for young founders and creators doing the zero to one. Love that. Can Can you talk to me about um, meditation? Because we we had this awesome conversation, and you were giving me kind of the breakdown uh, of what you what you do personally. But you also did this really cool program when you where you went away for ten days, mm-hmm. um, and. I, I forgot I forgot the specific place that you went to and what it was called and all that, but I was trying to relate it to people. Um, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm chatting with this guy like next week or the week week after next, and, and and I'll ask him about it. So could could you could you just relay that to me 
um, and also then what the significance of, of that was, because I, I feel like, especially in today's world, you touch on kind of like escapism, but then also having a community. Sometimes we just need like downtime, like yeah. a lot of, lot of like computer time. Um, and I'm, I'm exploring that personally. So this is just, this is me being selfish on the podcast yeah. and just asking you directly, like, uh, if you could give me that, uh, little experience again. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at the same time as, you know, I, right, I took that three months off, I went farming. Another thing I was like, you know, mm. what's something like well outside like my zone of understanding and zone of confidence was actually kind of the, the area of meditation. And I had a couple of friends do uh, what's called uh, a Vipassana meditation retreat. So Vipassana meditation comes mm. from Tibet, meant to be in the style of the Buddha. And what's really interesting about this style of meditation is there's no kind of like mantras or chanting or like kind of like visualizing things. It's literally like there's two core parts. So there's like Anapana, which is just observing mm. the breath. So learn mm. like, you know, if right now you and I are breathing, but we're not thinking about it, like there's a mm. passive system that is happening. Can we just mm. observe that without actively breathing it out without actively changing it? So watching the breath mm. as it, you know, rises and passes. So the Vipassana like 10 day meditation retreat, which is up in the blue mountains in a place called Dharma Bhumi. Um, yeah, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Like 10 of the most difficult days of my life, but 10 of the most rewarding. Mm. The first three days were literally just focusing on the breath. So I would sit there for mm. 10 hours a day, observing my breath. Cross legs, Cross back legs, straight, eyes closed. Um, mm. You know, set, by yourself in a room or with with a, we, in, in, in a, a community. Yeah, there yeah. were some, you know, there were some, yeah. and I think it was like total like ten hours a day. But it was like uh, you know, you know, one hour, one and a half hour block, a two and a half hour block, uh, you know, and then like a four hour block. Mm. There was like you know a couple blocks out they adding up to ten hours. We'd wake up mm. at uh, geez, what was it, four a.m. Mm. Uh, every single day, eat two meals a day, <laughs> um, and, and yeah. It was like, what were you eating, by the way? Oh, what was I eating? Oh my god, they had like this like beautiful stewed porridge with like um, like stewed mm. fruit and like cinnamon. Mm. Uh, lunch times would be kind of you know, like dal or lentils or beans or something like mm. that. It'd often be like in the afternoon tea. You technically got a third meal. You got like a piece of fruit and some tea. You know, they had different teas mm. on different days. But it was like you know vegan vegetarian food. And actually, like that was, that meditation retreat literally caused me to go vegan. I was vegetarian at the time. Mm. over the course of meditation retreat and it's like sat on mm. it for a long time and like the thought kept bubbling like bubbling up i'm like hang on a minute like it's not that hard for me to eat a vegan diet in sydney like it's actually pretty easy there's a yeah. lot of options it's actually very reasonably priced if you think about the cost of you know fruits vegetables beans legumes mm. um but yeah as i suppose coming back to the meditation retreat right so first three days learning to observe the breath and what that trains like your mind's super noisy and super chatty those first few days um, but what starts to happen is the mind starts to quiet and you start to get kind of these longer periods where you're observing without realizing that you're observing. It just like, it feels like you're saying like mm. breath is rising and falling and there's an awareness of it, but you're not thinking about thinking. It starts mm. to happen for longer, longer periods. And, and what happens in particular, so like then you get to kind of, I think it's like day three or day four, and they introduce the core of Vipassana technique, which for, for essentially is a, mm. a body scan. Like you're, you're starting mm. from the top of your head and you're going you know, down, you know, through the face, through the head, neck, chest, arms, torso, mm. legs. And the goal is essentially oh, not, not so much the goal, but you're observing sensations, they rise and pass. And the key thing you're trying to train is like not to crave pleasant physical sensations, nor to be averse to unpleasant mm. physical sensations. Um, and it, what was remarkable here, like I really, really struggled, um, you know, like the first couple of days, I think it was a day, even like halfway, like even halfway through retreat, I thought I'd like injured my back from like sitting so much and it was like, like <laughs> aching pain. I thought I was going to like literally like leave the retreat in the middle of it. Mm. Um, but you're not allowed to talk like this is a silent meditation with the exception of you know, going and speaking to kind of the teacher, maybe like once a day about any, you know, burning questions. Mm. Um, but I think one of the most amazing things for me was getting a visceral sense of impermanence. 
like I would have like, this mm-hmm. shooting pain in my back. I thought like, oh man, I've like gone and like torn a muscle. Like I'm doomed. Like I've got a medical injury now. I've like fucked my body up. Mm-hmm. Damn it. <laughs> and, and the crazy thing was, you know, in one moment you could feel like this searing pain in your body. And then you just, mm. if you observe it without reacting, you still observe it. You acknowledge it's there and you just like mm. observe the sensation and try to get really granular. Like, how does it feel? What starts mm. to happen with pain is it starts to dissipate into the smaller and subtler sensations, um, mm. which was just remarkable to me that like, you know, like you could be sitting there like cross-legged and like feel all stiff. And then like, it actually mm. starts to fade and dissipate. Um, and, and another thing as well is like, you know, like sometimes I do a meditation sit and I'd be like super, super happy by the end. And then like, I do the meditation sit and I like, you know, maybe it was a bit of a tougher sit and I'd be like, you know, like really like frustrated after, but then what would happen is like my day was almost the same every day. I would eat the same meals every day. I was doing like the same sits every day. And yet sometimes I felt happy and sometimes I felt sad. And you start to get this appreciation of like, wait, like the things outside can be almost exactly the same. And my reactions can be different. And you start to realize Mm. like a lot of these, you know, like emotions and sensations, they're just so fleeting. And I think it actually, Mm. it taught me not an intellectual level, but like at a visceral level to observe without reacting and to learn to let go. Um, Mm. Like holding on too much at the moment can create agitation and frustration or like disappointment Mm. or worry because you're, you're trying to think like about something that's, you know, in the past or in the future. Whereas like what this is trying to train is like, can you spend a greater percentage of your mental energy just on the present? And I'm someone like who by nature is really bad at that. Like I spend so much time thinking about the future. And I think in startups, a lot of people are probably biased that way. Right. Um, mm. what this taught me is like, you know, as in like, if there's problems in the future or if there's like, you know, things I'm worrying about for the past, it's like, none of those things are here right now. All that exists is this moment. And then you breathe in, breathe out. And then this moment, and it's just life is this sequence of connected mm. moments. And it's kind of up to you to how do you you react to each moment. Has this has this helped you manage the stress that comes with running a startup, or at least managing the future, the unknown, the unknowns of the future, like that, that stress that yeah, comes with that? Yeah, it actually it's interesting. Like I, I've definitely still I, like even after doing that experience, I definitely wasn't perfect. Like I was, like, I was mm. meditating for an hour a day pretty consistently for several months. But even then, mm. I still struggle with a burnout. Right, as in like like meditation is not like a, a fix all, a cure all for every problem and issue. Mm. What it has taught me, I, I think I've, it's made me more patient. It's like, hang on, I could sit in silence for 10 days. So I'm a lot more patient in waiting for things to work. Um, mm. If things go wrong, I think I'm a lot more easy at letting go and kind of accepting that sometimes things go wrong and that's fine. So I, I place less kind of like emotional waiting on getting too frustrated by, you know, something not going my way necessarily. So mm. to, to be fully transparent with you, I think it's actually like, it's been like, I think really hard to keep up a consistent meditation ritual in mm. the very traditional sense of like sitting down and doing an hour a day of like cross-legged eyes closed. Mm. I think though that there's a, something separate there, which is like the, the mindfulness element of like meditation is not just about what's on a cushion. This is one of the biggest misconceptions. Like I think meditation, mm. like, you know, it's, it's a broader category and a big part of that is honestly the state of mind as you go about the day and like, you know, how can you be mm. more present in the moment? How can you observe sensations, listen to the body? Um, and, so, mm. and so I think like, you know, when I think about the stress of the startup, like sometimes if I'm worrying about something, like, you know, I might just like take a bit of moment to like time out and just like observe, like, you know, how has my heartbeat changed? How has my mm. like pulse changed? How has my breathing changed? And what's really interesting is like, you like start to see such a strong relationship between your physiology and your thoughts. It's like mm. your thoughts almost coming from like a reaction to like this physiology. And if you just like observe the physiology mm. um, and, and let the thoughts kind of fade into the background, things start to kind of settle down. You know, like there's that classic thing of like, oh, just take deep breaths and everything will be fine. Like 
maybe mm. a bit of an exaggeration, but I do think there's this like big mind body connection mm. of these two disparate things. And like, if you, if the body is a kind of a, a state of peace, I think that flows through to the mind. Mm. One, one technique that I use is the, um, breathe two times through the nose and then slowly release through, uh, the mouth. And that that's been proven scientifically to reduce your level of stress and bring it back down to the baseline. So if you do it three times in a row and you can do it afterwards, or when you're feeling stressed, you do two really big through the nose and slowly through the mouth and do that three times. And you'll notice your body just calm down immediately. And I'm, I'm not sure why it happens. And I need to do the research on it, but, um, uh, there's a, a doctor that I was listening to who, who recommended it and, uh, and, and it works, works charms. Whenever I'm stressed, that's what I do. Um, or I, or I get to bed sleep. Uh, I get to just get to bed sleepier. Get to sl get to sleep earlier is what I meant to say. Yeah, um, I think the baseline of like, as in from like a mental health perspective, like you know, I think that like if people spending all summer meditation, but if you're not eating well, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not drinking water, if you're not exercising, like get the basics in order and then like focus on maybe yeah, like some of the exactly the more advanced stuff. Now, before I let you go, there's one last thing I'm going to ask you about, which is you raised the money, and we're coming full circle here. You raised the money for early work. Hmm. What's the next you know, 12 months look like for you guys? Have you, have you thought about, thought about that? Yeah. Super, super good question. Um, I think there are, there are a couple of things and so maybe I'll talk through like the high level of kind of the organization and then the three core pillars of what we're building. So at a high yeah. organization level, I think that, you know, the funding gives us the confidence to kind of, you know, go full time, all in on this, have the runway to, you know, pay ourselves a salary for 18 months and, you know, not be too worried about the finances and instead focus on solving the right problem and kind of doing really good research mm -hmm. there. Now, when you think across the three pillars of early work, I'll kind of go like, step through those and like talk through like kind of how we're thinking about them for the time being. Number one is I think around content, like it's, at its core, early work starters a newsletter. And that's fantastic in terms of like mid-form content that's kind of rich and not well captured, cross-posted on, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter and what have you. But there's a huge audience of young people who do not interact with the traditional career platforms of LinkedIn and Twitter and will not probably interact with the traditional like Substack type newsletter. And so in trying to reach that audience, I think an increasing bet for us is going to be around short form content, particularly video. So experimenting with like TikToks, Instagram reels, even YouTube shorts. I got suggestion the other day. Um, I think there's like a huge opportunity for us to really become a leading media player in helping young people navigate the changing world of work. Um, but to do that, I think we have to go beyond merely the format we have today. And so that's like one thing that's a key priority. I think another thing then thinking about our community, um, you know, the, the currently days is a Slack workspace for 2,500 young people across Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. there, there are two things there um, that are probably key priorities. I think number one is this idea of like layer two community. Like the question is like, how can we get mm -hmm. like the highest percentage possible of people in that community being an intimate part of a sub community. So you're not just like an early work mm -hmm. community member, but maybe you're like in the, the product community and you're going to the monthly product manager meetups. So you're in the investing community mm -hmm. and you're doing stock pitches and startup pitches. We want, mm -hmm. in order for something to feel like a community rather than just a forum, people need to feel, I think like an intimate sense of connection with a small subgroup. Like when you go to dinner, you don't go to dinner mm -hmm. with 200 friends, you go to dinner with you know, five or 10. Mm -hmm. And so the key mm -hmm. thing will be like building out the system for how we continue to launch and engage people in these small sub communities. Uh, in, in, in a sustainable way. And the other part of that community side is then thinking about infrastructure. It's like right now we're using Slack, which has a 10,000 message limit and beyond that at archives. Mm. So we start to think about, okay, like, do we start to look, you know, kind of like a custom platform and we're kind of doing research now into third party community platforms and whether we can integrate mm. those with Slack, whether we transition to those, that's kind of like an open question for us. Um, so that's like, you know, content number one, community number two. And I think the final pillar is around hiring. And that's where monetization happens. Mm. So as it stands today, we partner with like an awesome startup called Palette in the US and they kind of do job boards mm. as a service and kind of oh, yeah. search engines as a service. 
So we were originally mm-hmm. building our entire thing in no code. Like we had a no code talent search engine, no code job board. Mm-hmm. We looked at what Palette were doing and we're like, why build our own scrappy thing when for the time being, we can actually use this kind of really brilliant as a service type product and get that out to market. And so over the next couple of months, it's kind of, you know, we, we start to launch that into market working with, you know, customers like Finder, customers like, you know, Offload, uh, Relevance mm-hmm. AI, Leica, a couple of cool startups and scale-ups in the Australian market. Mm-hmm. We'll get, you know, more and more, you know, awesome for future-focused businesses using that. But I think like mm-hmm. a really, really big open question for us and something that's going to be super exciting is actually doing product discovery around a custom hiring platform. Mm-hmm. I think in particular, like, you know, for me, what it comes back to is it's like, if I want to help as many young people as possible land an awesome role, then I need to think really intentionally about matching success between talent and companies. Now that comes down to the quality of matching success. It's like, how do you ensure that a young person, when they go into a role, it's going to be a role that they love? How can you like increase the percentage chance of that? And for the company, increase the percentage chance of getting the right candidate. But then also the efficiency with which you do that. Like, how do you create a system that makes that super, super efficient? So I'll, I'll like probably over the next two to three months, I'll be doing like some pretty deep like product discovery research there, speaking with kind of a lot of our existing users, new users, companies, essentially to over time start to build kind of a, a custom platform around the the hiring space um, kind of for early mm-hmm. career talent. Um, I think to do that, that kind of just summing up, I think, you know, we'll probably be like launching our, our first employee uh, application soon, which is super exciting, probably hiring someone to kind of really help us out with the community and marketing, which have been in kind of the core of early work. And then I think you'll start to see probably in kind of second half of the year, uh, quite likely, you know, kind of engineering and design hires. Mm, very exciting, man. Very exciting. On, on the business model front, so, I mean, the traditional, like, uh, you know, hiring agency would take a clip or they take 20% or 30%. Mm. Um, and then job boards would take, you know, you know, I guess they'd charge a fee for you to post. Does your business model change much between those two or is there some yeah, let, 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 I'll talk to, mix between them? Yeah, I'll talk to two things there. So like on the job board side, it's very tactically, like our job board, the core model is free. Like even a small business, they mm. will post for free because we want to have a really good selection of roles for young people. We do have like a super hype mm. listing option where, you know, companies can pay mm. a couple hundred bucks to get promoted across our social media, be pinned to the top of the jobs board. Mm. We don't see that as a venture scalable product, but it's still a useful service that adds value to our community and, and you know, gets some revenue coming mm. in. I think for us, like the big bet is around kind of, yeah, like our, our talent search engine, which is something like we've been looking at even since kind of like, you know, like uh, September of last year, we kind of had like a no code prototype of it and we're kind of like getting signups then. I think the pricing model of this, like you look at a recruiter charge, you know, 15, 20%, we're taking quite a different mm-hmm. model where instead where we're building this amazing community of young people, they're active and passive job seekers. If we can show a pool of those job seekers and what they're looking for to companies, companies can subscribe to that pool. I.e., pay like a small up, like one time, or not one time, but monthly recurring subscription with like a very low cost, you know, mm. 100, 200 bucks, couple hundred bucks. I think, you know, we're doing kind of like beta testing right now, but like, you know, we don't expect mm. to be kind of a crazy upfront cost for subscription. Mm. And then like really try to align on incentive of actually hiring where it's like, if they get a successful hire through the community, then we take kind of like a, a referral fee. Um, but mm. the, the pricing model for that will probably be like significantly undercutting, I suppose, kind of the traditional green pricing model, because rather than a service based offering, it's a product based offering. Like we can keep on- mm. onboarding companies into that system, keep building this pool of candidates and they're kind of going and browsing and like, you know, like doing kind of the selection mm. and filtering themselves. And, you know, mm. in that regard, we're able to offer that at a much more competitive rate than a traditional, like a very high touch, uh, re- recruiting option. So there is a bit of a difference mm. in terms of pricing model there. Yeah, that's very exciting. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything you wanted to say? Did you want to send people anywhere? Anything you like? The floor's yours. Absolutely. Oh, I, I'm such a shill. So head to, head to, head to, head to earlywork.co. 
Um, and you can like check yeah. us out there. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I think we even yeah. have Facebook now, even though I don't really like Meta, yeah. but it's a good channel there. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. on um, you'll find kind of links to join the community. Um, so that's kind of a free community helping young people co-learn. Awesome place to be. We've got a newsletter, earlywork.substack.com. Every single week, we're putting out free career resources on future-focused careers. Um, so tune in if you just want, you know, free career information uh, in navigating your journey. And then in terms of the talent products, earlywork.co slash gigs, G-I-G-S, is our jobs mm-hmm. board for early career roles. And then earlywork.co slash talent is our talent search engine. So if you're a candidate and you want to land a role without applying, you can register your profile there and companies will come to you rather than you sending a bunch of applications and never hearing back. Mm. Yeah. Awesome, man. And the, the next time I have you on, uh, we're going to talk more about early home and this experiment and see how it, see how it went. Yeah, I'll tell you what, ha- have me on in uh, six months' time. I might have some interesting learnings. Maybe it succeeds, maybe I'm gonna it fails, s- but you know, I think it's going to be a really exciting learning experience. And at the end of the day, like that's like for me, like one of the most important pillars is like getting together with awesome people and learning as much as I can. Mm. Well, I'm going to send you the calendar invite right now for six months' <laughs> Let's time. Let's do it. Let's do it. Luca.